Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Carrie. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word together? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pause now as we come to your words, as we come to this picture of you, and I just pray that as we come to your word this morning, that no matter where we're at, no matter how distracted or confused or doubting or distant or guilt-ridden or fearful anxious that we might be this morning, that you would now calm our hearts and that you would open our hearts to see and to behold your beauty. Would we see this picture of who you are and would we be changed so that we would fall in love with you? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So kids, I got a question for us to get us started here. I got to wake you up. You're all in spring break mode. Um, so you know how there are things in life that we do because they're an obligation, because we have to do them, because it's our duty to do them, and if we don't do them, somebody's going to make us do them. And then there's other things in our life that we do because it's a delight, because we find pleasure in it, because it's a joy. Now, really, you can look at so many things in life in one of these two categories, For instance, why do you clean your room? It's 
not a rhetorical question, a real question. Yeah. Okay, because your mom tells you to, so that would fall in the category of obligation. I don't know any kids that are like, I love to clean my room, right? Why do you eat ice cream? Because it's good? Because you want to. Not because it's like, your mom's like, eat your ice cream, and then you can have some broccoli. But first, you've got to eat your ice cream, right? Nobody ever says that. Because... We eat ice cream because it's a joy, because it's a delight. And there's so many things in life that are like that. You know, like share with your brother, obligation. Uh, go play your baseball game, joy and delight. So many things in life fall into one of these two categories. Now, here's the reality. For most of us, as we think about God, as we think about following God, as we think about going to church, as we think about reading His Word, as we think about fellowship, as we think about all of these things that have to do with following God, so often we would put those in the category of duty. I mean, really deep down, I mean, if, if we're really honest, so often so many of those things we do because it's an obligation, because we know I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to like this. And for, for us, for many times, it's so hard to imagine that God would be in the category of delight, of joy, of pleasure. That we would actually find pleasure in the things of God. But here's what we see as we've been talking about discipleship. We've been in a series, a discipleship series, where we're talking about what does it mean to be a disciple and a disciple is not just someone who acts like Jesus. A disciple is someone who is in love with Jesus. And that is at the very heart of what discipleship is, that Jesus actually begins to become your delight. That's at the heart of discipleship. In our passage, we're going to see a picture of that delight, a picture of love and affection for Jesus, and then we're going to see how to get it. So let's look at this story. This is, I was telling somebody earlier, this is one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the book of Luke. And I know I say that each week, but I mean it this time, I promise. What I love about this story is, is the power of the story. Now, one of the things to realize is that as you come to the Bible, especially if you're new to the Bible, one thing that you might not know about the Bible is that the Bible is mostly story. Isn't that interesting? The majority of the Bible is story. It's narrative. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you use a story rather than just say, hey, here are the facts, here's what you're supposed to do, here's just the straightforward one through ten, we're done. You could do that in a page. Why don't we just do that? Because a story does something that just straight up facts and just telling you something doesn't do. What does it do? It grabs your heart. It moves your affections. And that is God's intention with story in the Bible. What we've got to do whenever we come to a narrative, whenever we come to a story, is to enter into the story, to put yourself into the story, to become an active participant in the story, to imagine yourself here in this place as if you were there, and to imagine, what would I be thinking? What would this look like? 
What would I be feeling in this moment? What would, I, what would be my reaction whenever I saw this happening? So I want you to do that as we step into this story. As we just look at the details that Luke's give, Luke gives us about this story and to imagine what would I be feeling? What would I be seeing as I'm in this story? So right off the bat, we learn in verse 36 that a Pharisee has invited Jesus to his house for dinner. Now in this culture, hospitality was like a really big thing. To have someone into your home, to uh, provide a meal for a person, it was a, it was a big kind of social event. It was very, uh, a very important way of expressing friendship and all of those things. But this, this Pharisee has had Jesus into his home, and as you see as you go throughout the, the as we go throughout the story, we see he's not so sure. He's kind of investigating Jesus a little bit. But what we know about Pharisees is that they were incredibly religious. They were incredibly um, uh, devoted. They, they would have been those people in, in society that we would have looked up to and said, man, those are the guys who are the closest to God. They're so religious. They're so devoted. One of the things that was incredibly important to Pharisees was not only conformity to rules, to keeping the rules, but also to cleanliness, to being clean and keeping yourself clean. Uh, Physically clean, but ceremonially clean. You didn't want to get even anywhere near someone who is morally defiled. So you can imagine what would it be like to go to a Pharisee's house. You would kind of be on edge a little bit. You ever been to somebody's house and it's just kind of intimidating and you're like, I don't know what to do here. I might do something wrong. Multiply that by 10 and you would imagine what it would feel like going to dinner at a Pharisee's house. There would have been other Pharisees there and here they are at the table. And the way that they would do dinner here in this day was very much a Roman style. So he says here that they were reclining at the table. So the table was not like a raised table with chairs under it. It was a lowered table just up off the floor. And people would lay on their left arm and kind of recline up next to the table with their feet back away from the table. And with their right hand, they would eat. Now that kind of seems a cool way to eat to me. Eat while you're laying down. I just, that's appealing to me. I don't know why. One of the reasons that they would eat in that way is that the feet would be away from the table because feet in this day, this, they, didn't have, uh, they didn't have shoes, they didn't have sidewalks. Feet were very nasty, very dirty. So you want to get your feet away from the table. So here they are. They're at dinner at this Pharisee's house. And all of a sudden, amongst this group of extremely religious and pious people, this uninvited guest comes in. We learn, as Luke introduces us to her here in verse 37, is that she is a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, and so she had a reputation. She, everyone knew who this woman was. A sinful woman in that town was another way of saying she was a prostitute. And in a small town like this, everyone would have known who she was. Everyone would have known how bad she was and morally corrupt she was and the kind of life that she had lived and she would have been seen as an outcast and she would have been the kind of person that these Pharisees wouldn't even look on, would avoid at all costs. And yet this woman 
comes into this dinner gathering. Can you imagine what she was feeling? I mean, these would have been the very people she would have spent her life avoiding. And yet she comes into this dinner setting. And she comes up behind Jesus and is weeping at her feet, at his feet. She's just weeping, just overcome with emotion. And these are not, these are not tears of, of fear or tears of guilt. These are tears of affection, just overcome with affection for Jesus. In fact, the only way that she would come into a room like this is that she was really only seeing one person, and that was Jesus. And so she's weeping over his feet. Maybe she's on her knees, and as she's weeping on her feet, she realizes that her, his feet are getting wet from her tears. And so she lets down her hair and begins to dry his feet with her hair. Now, can you imagine what you would be feeling as you're watching this happen? She's kissing his feet. She's weeping. One word for you. Awkward, right? What is going on here? Especially so whenever you imagine what the Pharisees were thinking in this moment. Knowing what kind of a woman she was knowing that she was a prostitute, and then seeing here her letting her hair down. So in this culture, to let your hair down was seen as similar to going topless. Right? It, was, it, was a, it was something that a woman would only do with her husband. And yet here she is letting her hair down. They're, they're of course, seeing that as if this is some sort of advance, some, some sort of a sexual thing that she's doing here. But no, she was just overcome with Jesus. She's wetting her feet, she's wiping his feet, she's kissing his feet. She takes this incredibly expensive jar of perfume and pours it out on his feet to anoint his feet with perfume. And so Simon, the, the, the Pharisee who's hosting this dinner, is watching this happen. And he's thinking to himself, and Luke actually tells us exactly what he's thinking. He's thinking to himself about Jesus. If this man were really a prophet, if he were really a holy man, he wouldn't put up with this. He would know who she is. He would know what kind of of a vile woman she is, what kind of a life she's lived. He would never allow himself to be touched by her. He's a holy man, and he is to be pure, and he would never allow her to get near him. He would end this display at once, but yet he's allowing it to happen. If he were a prophet, if he were really a holy man, he would never... Never permit this to happen. But here's the problem with your thoughts with Jesus. He knows them. He sees them. Jesus knows exactly what Simon is thinking in the moment. And Jesus doesn't like bust out on him and like, you are clueless, how how do you not get this? You know, he doesn't berate him. It's amazing to see here. Jesus pursues him. In fact, the first time that we even learn This Pharisee's name is whenever Jesus addresses him by his name and he says to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Jesus begins to pursue this Pharisee's heart. And the Pharisee, Simon, of course, he doesn't know that Jesus knows his thoughts. And he goes, tell me, teacher, you know, in a very kind of seeming pious way. And so Jesus tells him a parable. There was two men who owed a certain money lender two different amounts of money. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii was like a day's wage. 
So if you do the math there and you kind of imagine, well, what would that, would that be today? It's one of these guys owes about $10,000 and the other one owes about $100,000. And here's a key little detail of the story. Neither of them could pay. Neither of them had the money to pay their debt. So he cancels the debt of both. And then the question, Simon, which one of those two do you think would love him more? And Simon, of course, gets it in the story, and he says, well, I guess the one who owes the most amount of money. And Jesus says, good job, you answered correctly. And then Jesus says, now let's bring this into your world. And Jesus, notice how Luke describes it here. Jesus turns towards the woman. He's now looking at the woman, and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? One of the things you see in the book of Luke, it's, it's really fascinating, is that over and over and over, Luke wants us to see Jesus seeing people. He makes a point of that over and over and over, that people, that Jesus saw people. He actually saw them, like who they were. He, sometimes he would be in a crowd and he would see one person, and he would lock on them, and he would feel for them. He would enter in with them. And that's what Jesus is inviting Simon to do here. To see this woman. To see this woman that Simon before just saw a sinner. Just saw a filthy person. Someone to avoid. And Jesus is saying, I want you to see this woman. Do you see her? And then he applies the parable to their situation. I came into your house... You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. We begin to learn here that Simon has not only been skeptical of Jesus, he's also insulted him over and over and over by denying him basic hospitality. In this culture, to come into a dinner setting like this, it would have been just common courtesy to provide water to wash your feet, and you can imagine why to offer oil for your head, to freshen up before you came to dinner, and to be greeted with a kiss. You know, it's like, this is like the, you know, kiss on the cheek there. And it was a way of saying, you are welcome in my home, you are a friend. But yet Simon, for Jesus, had offered none of those things. And Jesus is making a comparison there. You didn't offer me any feet, any, any water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. See, what Jesus has done is put Simon in the story he just told. And so the money lender is God. And the person who owes 500 denarii, $100,000 is the woman. The one who owes $10,000 is Simon. Clearly, from the way that he would evaluate, her sin is greater. But Jesus' question is, if neither of them can pay, Simon doesn't even recognize that. There's no way for him to pay for his sin. But as their debts are canceled, which one will love more? The one who has the greater forgiveness, who has experienced the greater forgiveness, will love more. That's the point of the story. 
He's calling him to this woman's affection and her overflowing love for Jesus. And he's saying, the reason that she loves me so much is because she has experienced so much forgiveness. And the reason that you love me none is because you don't think you need any. Jesus is trying to get Simon to see. I don't want your conformity. I don't want your morality and your rule keeping and your keeping your nose clean and your strength and all of those things. I want your heart. I want your love. I want your affection. I don't want your performance. That's not what I'm after. I'm after your love. Let me give an illustration to just bring this to life. I've used this illustration before. It's one that John Piper is, has used many times before. But So imagine one day I'm, I'm coming home uh, from the end of the day, and I, uh, instead of just walking into the house, I ring the doorbell, and I knock at the door to get Ashley to come to the door, and I have, I have a, a bouquet of roses in my hand. And Ashley comes to the door, and she opens the door, and she says, oh, Wow! Thank you so much. What is this for? And if I just said, hey, don't mention it. It's my duty. I read in a book somewhere that this is what husbands are supposed to do. And so I just, I'm doing my duty now. What would be her response? She'd be like, you jerk. (laughs) That's like an insult, right? Now, imagine that plays out in a very different way. Imagine I come to the door, I knock at the door, ring the doorbell. She comes, I have the bouquet of roses. She says, oh my gosh, thank you. What are these for? And I say, I just wanted to express to you my love for you, that, that you, I delight in you. Now, what is her experience in that compared to the other? She feels treasured. She feels exalted. You see the point there. Our affection and our love exalts the person, the object of your affection. The greater your your delight, the greater your satisfaction in a certain person, the greater their glory, the, the more that they're magnified, their value and their worth. You see, that's what God is like. God's like, I just, I don't want your duty. I don't want your conformity because that's for you. I want your heart. I want your affection because the more deeply we delight in Him, the more deeply we love and find affection and treasure in Him, not in what He gives, but in Him, the more that He is magnified and glorified in our lives. See, Jesus is trying to get Him to see that. I don't want your conformity, just your your rule-keeping, your morality, all of those things. I want your heart. You know, a changed life flows from that. I don't merely want this duty. So Jesus is like redefining the way that Simon understands a relationship with God. You see, Simon, and this is so common in religion, is to think that, that, that what God wants in my life is for me to keep my nose clean, to, to avoid anything bad and to... You know, put a great record together and be, be strong before Him, be morally strong and, and upright, and that, that's what God wants. And so Jesus is saying, look at this woman, she's got none of that. She's got no record of morality. 
She's got no reputation. She's not got no strength. She's got none of that stuff. But she's got me. And that's all she needs. I am her treasure. You see, Simon, that's what I'm after in you. So the question is, how do we get that? How does God become our joy and our delight? How does it move from mere duty and mere conformity to He actually becomes your all-satisfying joy? How does that happen? Well, that's really the point of the passage. It comes through your experience of forgiveness. That's what he's teaching here. The more deeply you experience forgiveness, the more deeply and extravagantly you will love. So if you think you need a little bit of forgiveness or you needed a little forgiveness in your past life or whatever, then your love and your affection for Him is going to be so very small. But if you have this sense that I am utterly a wreck apart from your grace. I'm utterly broken. And I need you. My debt is huge. And I need your grace. Then your experience of that grace will produce a life of overflowing affection for Jesus. You got to see your need. That's Simon's problem. His whole approach to God is to avoid need. It's to be independent. Simon avoids sin so that he can avoid Jesus, so that he can avoid God. You see, if you cannot see your sin, if you cannot see the magnitude of your sin, then the joy of His forgiveness is not going to electrify your life. It's not going to change you. If you don't have this deep, profound sense of your desperate need of grace then Jesus is just not going to be your treasure. It's just going to be small love. It's just going to be token. It's going to be cold. It's going to be a concept in your head. It's not going to be the overflowing desire of your heart. How do we get that? You, that that's the point in confession. In confession and repentance of seeing our sin, we've, we've got to learn how to see and acknowledge our sin before the Lord. Not in order to pay for it. Sometimes we think that confession pays for our sin. Confession does not pay for your sin. When you confess your sin to God, that is not paying for your sin. Because you cannot pay for your sin. There's one thing that can pay for your sin. That is the finished work of Christ. So what is confession then? If I'm not going to get my sin paid for... In confession, you are going to experience His forgiveness. To restore the relationship. It's not to go and say, can you please forgive me? If you're in union with Christ, the reality is, I've been justified. I've been declared righteous. My sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And so my sin can no longer condemn me. That's an amazing truth. Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're in union with Christ... You can no longer come under condemnation. And so you see how that changes the reality of confession and repentance? For some of us, the thought of of seeing our sin is like something we want to avoid because whenever we see or confess our sin, we just feel worse about ourselves. We just feel more guilty. Why is that? Because we're only seeing our sin. We're not letting our sin drive us to Christ. We're not seeing the cross. We're not seeing the gospel. 
Because when, when, when we're, we're in union with Christ, our sin cannot condemn us. And so it becomes something that just exposes the magnitude of the cross, the depth of His forgiveness. And do you see how that generates love? How that generates affection in our hearts and our relationship with Jesus? One pastor once said, for every one look at sin, take ten looks at Christ. I bet for most of us, we've got that backwards. For every one look at Christ, we take ten looks at sin. You'll be in despair. Let me just get personal for my own life. You know, just because I'm like teaching this stuff doesn't mean I get it. I struggle with this all the time. That my sin so often seems so much bigger and more ugly than the cross seems powerful. It, it, I don't know what you're like. Some of us are not like, some of us struggle to see our sin. Like we think, yeah, I used to be a sinner. I, that's not me. I see it more readily. And it's just hard for me to really believe. Are you sure like you really forgave it? I mean, you, you sure it's that big? I mean, I know for this stuff back here, but you sure for this? I, I've got to constantly be exposing my heart to the truth of the gospel, or I despair, or the accusation is too great. So what about you as you look at this passage? Who do you identify with? Let's just bring this home into your life. Who do you identify with in the passage? Do you identify more with Simon? A cold, distant relationship with Jesus? Or the sinful woman? Affection delight, joy in Jesus? Who do you identify more with? Do you experience that affection for Jesus? I'm not talking about constantly. We're just not going to get there. I mean, until we are with Him face to face, you're not going to have just perfect, constant joy in Jesus. So we're battling for that. But do you experience it? Or is it more of like an idea? Is He an idea? Is He a distant reality for you? I want to give you a tool, and this is a tool I've used, and we're going to actually use it as we come to communion in just a moment. This is a tool that uh, Tim Keller uses just personally. I mean, he just, this is what he uses in his own life, and it's a, it's a, a tool for preaching the gospel to himself. And so he just, he asks himself four questions. He, he actually starts his day with this prayer, and I'm like, oh man, Lord, would you make me so happy in the grace of Jesus today? That I'm not proud, or cold, or fearful, or hooked. That's his prayer to start the day. And then somewhere along the way in the day, he comes to God, he checks in with God, and he looks back on his day for confession and repentance and says, now, during this day, where have I... He lists those four things. Which is just four kind of ways of really getting at the idols of our heart. It's four ways of getting at the ways in which our heart runs after other things. So this is my challenge for you this week, to use this tool. To try each, just try it each day. As I say each week, you can try it for a week, and then you don't ever have to do it again. But try it this week as a challenge. Each day to 
to go to the Lord in confession and to ask those four questions in review of your day. Lord, today, where have I been proud? Where have I been independent in heart? Where have I looked down on other people? Where have I felt like I don't need you and other people? Where have I been self-absorbed? Secondly, where have I been cold towards another person today? Where have I been so caught up in me that I have been unable to feel other people? To feel any compassion for other people, to see people, to enter in with people. I've just been cold and distant from people. That one just nails me. Where have I been scared today? Where have I been scared? Where have I been afraid? Where have I been anxious Where have I been in looking at the realities of my life, avoiding things because I'm afraid of things? And then finally, where have I been hooked? Where have I been taken in by something that I'm running to, to avoid you? Where have I been addicted? Where have I been just kind of in the clutches of something? Where have I been hooked? What a great tool. To see this and then let that load your heart and drive you to the gospel. Drive you to Jesus to experience his forgiveness. Because we see in the passage, it's in that experience of forgiveness that love and affection for Jesus grows and is driven. So we're going to come to the communion table today. And for our prayer of confession, I just want us to use that. To just use that tool. I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer of confession. And I want you to actually confess in those four areas of your life. To think about where have I, it could be today. Listen, I've done this today already. I'm not even halfway through the day, right? Where have I been proud? Where have I been cold? Where have I been scared? And where have I been hooked? And then we'll come to the table and experience the riches of His grace. So let's pray together, prayer of confession, and I do invite you, I'm going to be praying, but I'm going to be giving you a few moments of silent confession, so let's go and confess our sins to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we come before you now, Lord, it is so hard to imagine that you really are this gracious. Would you give us the faith to believe that? Because you tell us over and over and over in your scripture that you are. So Lord, we just confess our sin to you. We have not loved you. We have not delighted in you. Instead, we have delighted in all kinds of things in the world. And our our religious activity has so often just been cold conformity and duty. It's not been affectionate delight in you. And so we confess that to you. Lord, we confess that we've been proud. Proud in spirit, proud in heart, feeling that that we can handle life on our own. Lord, feeling that we are better than other people. Lord, we in our pride have looked down on other people. We've been critical of other people. We've judged other people in our hearts. Lord, we've also been cold towards others in our just being absorbed with ourselves and our concerns. We have failed to be moved by people, to see people, to 
be interested in people in our life, to move towards them, to enter into life with them. Lord, we have been cold. We have not been warm. We have not been loving. We have not been inviting. Lord, we've also been scared. We've been anxious. We've been fearful. Lord, you say that you are in control of all things. All power is in your hands and you are our Father. But yet in unbelief, we are afraid of so many things in our life. We confess our fear. We confess unbelief. Lord, finally we've been hooked. We have allowed good created things to take mastery over our hearts and our lives. We've allowed good gifts that you've put in our life to take hold of our hearts, to enslave us. Lord, we have been addicted to things and we have been controlled by things and we have been in the clutches of things. Lord, we've been hooked. Lord, we confess our sin to you. And we confess that we are in desperate need of your grace. But Lord, we rejoice in your finished work, Lord Jesus. That you, by the power of your cross, have taken our sins away. Past, present, and future. You have reconciled us to the Father. You have clothed us in your righteousness. And we now rest and believe in the truth of the gospel. We now receive your forgiveness. Would you let us experience that in the deepest places of our soul at your communion table? Lord, as we come to this table, would you set apart these elements, this bread and this wine, set it apart for a holy use, that in it we would encounter the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that has now made us free. Fill our hearts with joy and affection for you at your table. In Christ's name we pray, amen.